Podcastle, episode 335, for October 29th, 2014. The Gorgon, by Clark Ashton Smith. Rated PG. I bid you a most gracious welcome to Podcastle, and state without reservation that I am indeed M.K. Hobson, a statement which you, dear listener, have no reason to disbelieve. However, as my introduction to today's story by Clark Ashton Smith unfolds, and a bizarre antique variety of madness begins to reveal itself through this very modern technology known as podcasting, perhaps you shall find that doubting arises. Perhaps, indeed, you will begin to question not only whether I am, in actuality, M.K. Hobson, the humble narrator who has been your guide and sometimes sinister gatekeeper to so many exquisite pieces of short fantastical fiction, but you may even begin to question whether or not you are really listening to anything at all, or if, instead, today's story, which is titled The Gorgon, is in actual fact the mad rantings of an antique and eldritch consciousness arising from the dark, insane depths of your own twisted psyche. Meaningless gibberings that, if you were to mention them casually to a co-worker tomorrow, she would level a gaze upon you, hideously impregnated with the loathsome spawn of horror and despair, and then quickly turn away from you to grab the last donut from the table in the break room. Dear listener, Ignore the persistent, agonizing pain behind your eyeballs and the incessant, mournful shrieking you hear in the distance. We will continue with the comforting fabulation that this is a story which originally appeared in Weird Tales in 1932, written by Clark Ashton Smith, a shy recluse who lived most of his life in Auburn, California, and who, with little more than a primary school education, cloaked himself in star-streaked midnight purple radiance as the god-emperor of a style of prose that one might insightfully compare to a fat little pug dog, breathless and oratund, with an unshakable confidence in its own ferocity, and whose unspeakable homeliness is its most endearing and undying charm. The story was obtained for Podcastle through the dark and otherworldly conjurings of Sean Garrett and Alex Hoflick from Pseudopod, and it will be read to you by your good friend, your bosom chum, Norm Sherman of Escape Pod and Drabblecast. Do you feel better now? Has the existential queasiness passed? Good. Now just relax and close your eyes, and pay no attention to the faint sound of scratching claws. Enjoy the story. The Gorgon, by Clark Ashton Smith. Yet it is less the horror than the grace which turns the gazer's spirit into stone. Shelley. I have no reason to expect that anyone will believe my story. If it were another's tale, probably I should not feel inclined to give it credence myself. I tell it herewith, hoping that the mere act of narration, the mere shaping of this macabre daymare adventure into words, will in some slight measure serve to relieve my mind of its execrable burden. There have been times when only a hair's breadth has intervened betwixt myself and the seething devil-ridden world of madness, for the hideous knowledge, the horror-blackened memories which I have carried so long were never meant to be borne by the human intellect.
A singular confession, no doubt, for one who has always been a connoisseur of horrors. The deadly, the malign, and baleful things that lurk in the labyrinth of existence have held for me a fascination no less potent than unholy. I have sought them out and looked upon them as one who sees the fatal eyes of the basilisk in a mirror, or as a savant who handles corrosive poisons in his laboratory with mask and gloves. Never did they have for me the least hint of personal menace, since I viewed them with the most impersonal detachment. I have investigated many clues of the spectral, the ghastly, the bizarre, and the many mazes of terror from which others would have recoiled with caution or trepidation. But now I could wish that there were one lore which I had not followed, one labyrinth which my curiosity had not explored. More incredible than all else, perhaps, is the very fact that the thing occurred in 20th century London. The sheer anachronism and fabulosity of the happening has made me doubt the verities of time and space, and ever since then I have been as one adrift on starless seas of confusion or roaming through unmapped dimensions. Never have I been quite able to reorient myself, to be altogether sure that I have not gone astray in other centuries, in other lands than those declared by the chronology and geography of the present. I have continual need of modern crowds, of glaring lights, of laughter and clangor and tumult to reassure me, and always I am afraid that such things are only an insubstantial barrier, that behind them lies the realm of ancient horror and immemorial malignity of which I have had this one abominable glimpse. And always it seems to me that the veil will dissolve at any moment and leave me face to face with an ultimate fear. There is no need to detail the events that brought me to London. It should be enough to say that I had endured a great grief, the death of the only woman whom I had loved. I traveled as others have done, to forget, to seek distraction among the novelties of foreign scenes, and I tarried long in London, because its gray and mist-enfolded vastness, its ever-varying throngs, its inexhaustible maze of thoroughfares and lanes, houses, were somehow akin to oblivion itself, and offered more of refuge from my sorrow than brighter cities had given. I do not know how many weeks or months I lingered in London. Time meant little to me, except as an ordeal to be undergone, and I reckon not of its disposal. It is hard to remember what I did or where I went, for all things were blurred in a negligible monotone. However, my meeting with the old man is clear as any present impression, perhaps clearer, among the faint recollections of that period, it is etched as with some black acid. I cannot recall the name of the street on which I saw him, but it was not far from the Strand, and was full of a late afternoon crowd beneath a heaven of high fog through which the sun had not penetrated for days. 
I was strolling idly along amid hurrying faces and figures that meant no more to me than the featureless heavens or the uniform shops. My thoughts were idle, empty, immaterial, and in those days, since I'd been brought face to face with an all-too-real horror, I had relinquished my search for the darker mysteries of existence. I was without forewarning, without anticipation of anything but the daily drabness of the London streets and people. Then, from that anonymous welter of humanity, the man stood before me with the terrifying suddenness of an apparition, and I could not have sworn from which direction he'd come. He was not unusual in frame or stature, apart from the erectness with which he carried himself notwithstanding extreme manifest age. Nor were his garments uncommon, aside from the fact that they too were excessively old, and seemed to exhale an air of greater antiquity than was warranted even by their cut and fabric. It was not these, but the man's visage which electrified all my drowsy faculties into a fascinated, awe-struck attention, with the mortal pallor of his deeply wrinkled features like graven ivory, with his long curling hair and beard that were as white as moon-touched vapor, his eyes that glowed in their hollow sockets like the coals of demon fires. He would have made a living model for Sharon, the boatman who ferries the dead to Hades. He seemed to have stepped from an age and land of classic mythology into the teeming turmoil of that London street, and the strange impression which he made upon me was in no wise modified by his habiliments. I paid so little attention to these that I could not remember their details afterward, though I think that their predominant color was a black that had begun to assume the green of time and suggested the plumage of some sinister bird. My astonishment at the appearance of this singular old man was increased when I saw that no one else in the throng seemed to notice anything unusual, but that all were hastening on their way with no more, at most, than the offhand scrutiny which one would give to some aged beggar. As for me, I had paused in my strolling, petrified with an instant fascination, an immediate terror which I could not analyze or define. The old man, too, had paused, and I saw that we were both a little withdrawn from the current, which passed so obviously, intent on its own fears and allurements. Evidently, realizing that he'd caught my attention and perceiving the effect which he had upon me, the old man stepped nearer, smiling with a hint of some horrible malevolence, some nameless antique evil. I would have drawn back, but I was bereft of the power of movement. Standing at my very side and searching me with the gaze of his coal-like orbs, he said to me in a low tone, which could not have been overheard by passerbys, I can see that you have a taste for horror, the dark and awful secrets of death, the equally dreadful mysteries of life. 
They'll lower your interest. If you care to come with me, I will show you something which is the quintessence of all horror. You shall gaze on the head of Medusa with its serpent locks, that very head which was severed by the sword of Perseus. I was startled beyond measure by the strange words uttered in accents which seemed to be heard by the mind rather than the ear. Somehow, unbelievable as this will seem, I have never been quite sure in what language he spoke. It may have been English, or it may have been Greek, which I know perfectly. The words penetrated my understanding without leaving any definite sense of their actual sound, and of the the voice itself, I know only that it was such as might issue from the very lips of Sharon. It was guttural, deep, malign, with an echo of profound gulfs and sunless grottoes. Of course, my reason strove to dismiss the unaccountable feelings and ideas that had surged upon me. I told myself that it was all imagination, that the man was probably some queer sort of madman, or else a mere trickster, or a showman who took this method of drumming up custom. But his aspect and his words were of necromantic strangeness. They seemed to promise in a superlative degree the weirdness and bizarre which I had sought in former times, and of which so far I had found little. So I answered him quite seriously. Indeed, I should like to see the head of Medusa, but I always understood that it was quite fatal to gaze upon her, that those who beheld her were turned immediately into stone. That can be avoided, returned my interlocutor. I will furnish you with a mirror, and if you are truly careful and succeed in restraining your curiosity, you can see even as Perseus did. But you will have to be very circumspect, and she is really so fascinating that few have been able to refrain from looking at her. Yes, you must be very cautious. <laughs> His laughter was more horrible even than his smile, and even as he laughed, he began to pluck my sleeve with a knotted hand wholly in keeping with his face, and which might well have gripped through untold ages the dark oars of the Stygian barge. Come with me, it is not far, he said, and you will never have a second opportunity. I am the owner of the head, and I do not show it to many, but I can see that you are one of the few who are fitted to appreciate it. It is inexplicable to me that I should have accepted his invitation. The man's personality was highly abhorrent. The feeling he aroused in me was a mixture of irresistible fear and repugnance. In all likelihood, he was a lunatic, perhaps a dangerous maniac, or, if not actually mad, was nurturing some ill design, some nefarious purpose to which I would lend myself by accompanying him.' 
It was madness to go with him. It was folly even to listen to his words. And of course, his wild claim concerning the ownership of the fabled Gorgon's head was too ridiculous even for the formality of disbelief. If such a thing had ever existed, even in mythic Greece, it would certainly not be found in present-day London, in the possession of a doubtful-looking old man. The whole affair was more preposterous than a dream, but nevertheless, I went with him. I was under a spell, the spell of unknown mystery, terror, absurdity, and I could no more have refused his offer than a dead man could have refused the conveyance of Sharon to the realms of Hades. My house is not far away, he assured me repetitively as we left the crowded street and plunged into a narrow, lightless alley. Perhaps he was right, though I have no precise idea of the distance which we traversed. The lanes and thoroughfares to which he led me were such as I could hardly have believed to exist in that portion of London, and I was hopelessly confused, astray in less than a minute. The houses were foul tenements, obviously of much antiquity, interspersed with a few decaying mansions that were doubtless even older, like remnants of some earlier city. I was struck by the fact that we met no one, apart from rare and furtive stragglers who seemed to avoid us. The air had grown extremely chill, fraught with unwanted odors that somehow served to reinforce the sensations of coldness and utter age. Above all was a dead, unchanging sky with its catafalque of oppressive and superincumbent grayness. I could not remember the streets through which we passed, though I was sure that I must have traversed this section before in my wanderings, and a queer perplexity had now mingled with my feeling of dismay and bemusement. It seemed to me that the old man was leading me into a clueless maze of unreality, of deception and dubiety, where nothing was normal or familiar or legitimate. The air darkened a little, as with the first encroachment of twilight, though it still lacked an hour of sunset time. In this premonitory dusk, which did not deepen, but became stationary in its degree of shadow, through which all things were oddly distorted, assuming illusory proportions, we reached the house which was our destination. It was one of the dilapidated mansions, belonging to a period which I was unable to name despite my extensive architectural knowledge. It stood a little apart from the surrounding tenements, and more than the dimness of the premature twilight seemed to adhere to its dark walls and lampless windows. It impressed me with a sense of vastness, yet I have never been quite sure concerning its exact dimensions, and I cannot remember the details of its facade, apart from the high and heavy door at the head of a flight of steps, which were strangely worn as by the tread of incalculable generations. The door swung open without sound beneath the gnarled fingers of the old man, who motioned me to precede him. 
I found myself in a long hall, illumined by silver lamps of an antique type such as I had never before seen in actual use. I think there were ancient tapestries and vases, and also a mosaic floor, but the lamps are the only things which I remember clearly. They burned with white flames that were pre-naturally still and cold, and I thought that they had always burned in this manner, unflickering, unreplenished throughout a frozen eternity whose days were in no wise different from its nights. At the end of the hall we entered a room that was similarly litten, and whose furniture was more than reminiscent of the classic. At the opposite side was an open door, giving on a second chamber, which appeared to be crowded with statuary, for I could see the outlines of still figures that were silhouetted or partly illumined by unseen lamps. "'Be seated,' said my host, indicating a luxurious couch. "'I will show you the head in a few minutes, but haste is unseemly when one is about to enter the very presence of Medusa.' I obeyed, but my host remained standing. He was paler and older and more erect than ever in the chill lamplight, and I sensed a sinewy, unnatural vigor, a diabolic vitality, which was terrifyingly incongruous with his extreme age. I shivered with more than the cold of the evening air and the dank mansion. Of course, I still felt that the old man's invitation was some sort of preposterous foolery or trickery, but the circumstances among which I found myself were unexplainable, uncanny. However, I mustered enough courage to ask a few questions. I am... Naturally surprised, I said, to learn that the Gorgon's head has survived into modern times. Unless the query is impertinent, will you not tell me how it came into your possession? <laughs> laughed the old man with a loathsome rictus. That is easily answered. I won the head from Perseus at a game of dice when he was in his dotage. But how is that possible? I countered. Perseus lived several thousand years ago. Yes, according to your notation. But time is not altogether the simple matter which you believe it to be. There are shortcuts between the ages. There are deviations and overlappings among the epochs of which you have no idea. Also, I can see that you are surprised to learn that the head is in London. But London, after all, is only a name. And there are shiftings, abbreviations, interchanges of space, as well as of time. I was amazed by his reasoning, but was forced to admit internally it did not lack a certain logic. I see your point, I conceded. And now, of course, you will show me the Gorgon's head. Oh, in a moment, but I must warn you again to be supremely careful, and also you must be prepared for its exceeding and overwhelming beauty, no less for its horror. The danger lies, as you may well imagine, in the former quality. 
He left the room and soon returned, carrying in his hand a metal mirror of the same period as the lamps. The face was highly polished, with a reflecting surface well-nigh equal to that of glass, but the back and handle, with their strange carvings of Laokun figures, writhed in a nameless frozen agony, were black with the tarnish of elder centuries. It might well have been the very mirror that was employed by Perseus. The old man placed it in my hands. Come he said, and turned to the open door through which I'd seen the crowded statuary. Keep your eyes on the mirror, he added, and do not look beyond it. You will be in grave peril as soon as you enter this door. He preceded me, averting his face from the portal, gazing back across his shoulder with watchful orbs of malignant fire, my own eyes intent on the mirror, I followed. The room was unexpectedly large and was lit by many lamps that depended from chains of wrought silver. At first sight, when I'd crossed the sill, I thought that it was entirely filled with stone statues, some of them standing erect in postures of a painful rigor, others lying on the floor in agonized eternal contortions. Then, moving the mirror a little, I saw that there was a clear space through which one could walk, and a vaster, vacant space at the opposite end of the room, surrounding a sort of altar. I could not see the whole of this altar, because the old man was now in my line of mirrored vision, but the figures beside me, at which I now dared to peep with the mirror's intermediation, were enough to absorb my interest. They were all life-sized, and they all offered a most singular medley of historical periods. Yet it would seem that all of them, by the sameness of their dark material, like a black marble, and the uniform realism and verisimilitude of their technique might well have been sculptured by the same hand. There were boys, bearded men in the chitons of Greece. There were medieval monks and knights in armor. There were soldiers and scholars and great ladies of the Renaissance, of the Restoration. There were people of the 18th, the 19th, and 20th centuries. And in every muscle, in every lineament of each, was stamped an incredible suffering, an unspeakable fear. And more and more as I studied them, a ghastly, hideous conjecture was formulated in my mind. The old man was at my elbow, leering and peering into my face with a demoniac malice. You are admiring my collection of statuary, he said, and I can see that you are impressed by its realism. But perhaps you have already guessed that the statues are identical with their models. These people are the unfortunates who were not content to see Medusa only in a mirror. Oh, I warned them, even as I have warned you, but the temptation was too much. I could say nothing. My thoughts were full of terror, consternation, stupefaction. Had the old man told me the truth? Did he really possess anything so impossible, so mythical, as the Gorgon's head? 
Those statues were too lifelike, too veridical in all their features, and their poses that preserved a lethal fear, their faces marked with a deadly but undying torment. No human sculptor could have wrought them, could have reproduced the physiognomies and the costumes with a fidelity so consummate, so atrocious. Now, said my host, having seen those who were overpowered by the beauty of Medusa, it is time for you to behold the Gorgon herself. He stepped to one side, eyeing me intently, and I saw in the metal mirror the whole of that strange altar which his body had partially intercepted. It was draped with some funereal black fabric. Lamps were burning on each side with their tall, frozen flames. In the center, on a broad pattern of silver or electrum, there stood the veritable head, even as the ancient myth have depicted, with vipers crawling and lifting among its matted locks. How can I delineate or even suggest that which is beyond the normal scope of human sensation? I saw in the mirror a face of unspeakable radiant pallor, a dead face from which there poured luminous blinding glories of celestial corruption, of superhuman bale and suffering, with lidless, intolerable eyes, with lips that were parted in agonizing smiles. She was lovely, she was dreadful, beyond any vision ever vouchsafed to a mystic or an artist, and the light that emanated from her features was the light of worlds that lie too deep or too high for mortal perception. Hers was the dread that turns the marrow to ice, and the anguish that slays like a bolt of lightning. Long did I gaze in the mirror with the shuddering awe of one who beholds veilless countenance of a final mystery. I was terrified, appalled, fascinated to the core of my being, for that which I saw was the ultimate death, the ultimate beauty. I desired, yet I did not dare to turn my eyes, lift them to the reality whose mere reflection was a fatal splendor. The old man had stepped closer. He was peering into the mirror, watching me with furtive glances by turns. Is she not beautiful? he whispered. Could you not gaze upon her forever? And do you not long to behold her without the intermediation of the mirror, which hardly does her justice? I shivered at his words, and at something which I sensed behind them. No, no, I cried vehemently. I admit all that you say, but I will not gaze any longer. I am not mad enough to let myself be turned to a stone image. I thrust the mirror into his hands as I spoke, turned to leave, impelled by an access of overmastering fright. I feared the allurement of Medusa, and I loathed that evil ancient with a loathing that was beyond limit or utterance. 
The mirror clattered on the floor as the old man dropped it, spraying upon me with a tigerish agility. He seized me with knotted hands, and though I had sensed their sinewy vigor, I was not prepared for the demoniacal strength with which he whirled me about and thrust me toward the altar. Look! Look! he shrieked, and his voice was that of a fiend who urges the damned to some further pit of perdition. I had closed my eyes instinctively, but even even through my lids I felt the searing radiance. I knew, I believed implicitly the fate which would be mine if I beheld Medusa face to face. I struggled madly but impotently against the grip that held me, and I concentrated all my will to keep my lids from lighting even by the breadth of an eyelash. Suddenly, my arms were freed, and I felt the diabolic fingers on my brow groping swiftly to my eyes. I knew their purpose, and knew also that the old man must have closed his own eyes to avoid the doom he designed for me. I broke away, I turned, I grappled with him, and we fought insanely, frantically, as he strove to swing me about with one arm, tore at my shut eyelids with the other. Young as I am and muscular, I was no match for him, and I swerved slowly toward the altar, with my head bent back till my neck almost broken, in a vain effort to avoid the iron fumbling of his fingers. A moment more and he would have conquered, but the space in which we fought was narrow, and he'd now driven me back against a row of stone figures, some of which were recumbent on the floor. He must have stumbled over one of these, for he fell suddenly with a wild, despairing cry and released me as he went down. I heard him strike the floor with a crash that was singularly heavy, a crash as of something harder and more massive and more ponderous than a human body. Still standing with shut eyes, I waited, but there was no sound and no movement from the old man. Bending toward the floor, I ventured to look between half-open lids. He was lying at my feet, beside the figure on which he'd tripped, and I needed no second glance to recognize in all his limbs, in all his lineaments, the same rigidity and the same horror which characterized the other statues. Like them, he'd been smitten instantaneously into an image of dark stone. In falling, he had seen the very face of Medusa, even as his victims had seen it. And now, he would be among them forever. Somehow, with no backward glance, I fled from the room, found my way from that horrible mansion. I sought to lose it from my sight and memory in half-deserted, mysterious alleys that were no legitimate part of London. The chill of ancient death was upon me. It hung in the web of timeless twilight along those irrecognizable ways, around those innumerable houses, and it followed me as I went. But at last, by what miracle I know not, I came to a familiar street where people thronged in the lamplit dusk and the air was no longer chill except with a falling fog. Welcome back, dear listener. 
I trust that the pain has subsided and you are now suffused with a strange death-like calm. This is naturally to be expected when seething enlightenment infects the human cerebellum. As a result, you are likely craving more of Clark Ashton Smith's work. Or perhaps craving is too mild a term for the gnawing emptiness that now exists in the deepest pit of your soul. To fill this gaping maw, the proprietors of your new master's literary estate invite you to purchase the newly released Penguin Classics edition of The Dark Eidolon and Other Fantasies, edited by S.T. Joshi. You will likely have to purchase several copies to keep the madness at bay, but I am told they are quite reasonably priced and even available as an ebook. If you wish to share what you thought about today's story, we welcome your rantings at forum.escapeartists.net, though it is likely no one will believe you. Feedback this week is for Podcastle 325, Down, by Christopher Fowler. Commenter Fenrix noted the story's dripping claustrophobia, which I found an apt description. But overall, confusion and perplexity dominated this thread. Even Dave Thompson, usually immune to such bewilderment, managed to misattribute the quote, no one should brave the underworld alone, to Edgar Allan Poe, when it was actually penned by the singer Poe, a creative genius of slighter renown, who likely will never pen works that rival her famous namesake, but also does not seem destined to die under mysterious circumstances in the streets of Baltimore, Maryland. Furthermore, several commenters lacked familiarity with the concept of a third rail. I hope none of these innocent creatures plan to do any urban spelunking anytime soon. It should also be noted, should you find yourself mysteriously wandering the Stygian depths of a New York subway tunnel, that those puddles you see are not always rainwater, the shadows that move under the platforms are indeed alive, and the alligators are always, always hungry. Thank you for your comments. You are commanded to visit podcastle.org and make a donation. Every buffalo, nickel, and wheat sheaf penny goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. And so, on behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wenick, Graham Dunlop, Anna Schwind, and Dave Thompson, thank you for submitting yourself to this excursion into atrocity. We'll be back next week. Until then, this is M.K. Hobson for Podcastle, leaving you with a quote from George Orwell. Good novels are written by people who are not afraid. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. <laughs>